with verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, no one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are Almighty God, that there is no searching of your understanding, your wisdom, Father. There is no limit to your power and strength. You never get weary. And thank you that as a faithful and almighty God, you are faithful to us. Thank you, Father, for your provision of love that you've shown through the Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to go to the cross to be our Savior and for your power to raise him from the dead and secure the victory in our eternal future. Thank you that you offer that gift of forgiveness through simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and along with it the assurance of an eternal home in heaven. But thank you, Father, you're at work in our lives as well to free us from the enslavements of sin and from the effects of this present evil world. Thank you that you are a very present help with us in all of our troubles. Thank you, Father, you've given us exceeding great and precious promises in your word that we might be partakers of the divine nature. And Father, thank you that we could gather together to offer up our thanks and our praise and our worship. And Father, we pray as we come before you today in praise and worship that we come before your word with a hunger and respect to, to know what you'd have to say to us. To understand your word, Father, in all its depth and all its all those great and precious promises. And for in it, Father, we find the beauty and wonder of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Creator, the Almighty God who became a man in order to be our Savior, and Father, and all the love and goodness you show to us through him and your grace. And so, Father, quiet our hearts this morning. Prepare us to hear your word. And may we understand the things you would teach us today, that our faith might be founded not on man's opinion or man's wisdom, but on thus saith the Lord. And so, Father, we pray that you would be our teacher and guide and open our eyes today. And wherever your word is given out, Father, today in our region, churches we're familiar with, friends and family members, churches around our nation and world, Father, may your word go out in, in that awe, in that respect, and in your power, that your children might take heed to, to what you teach us, that we could be the lights that we ought to be. For, Father, the world is broken around us and needy, and what they need is a, is a relationship with you to return to the foundation of their creator. And that, Father, is accomplished through our relationship with Christ. And so, Father, help us to be that light. Equip us to be that light. Give us a boldness and concern for those around us to share with them the good news of salvation, of healing and deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we trust you be glorified as we study your word together. Watch over us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Back to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue our verse-by-verse -verse study of God's Word in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 4. Last, year, last week, as we talked about contentment, as Paul leaves us an example 
of contentment, we found he says that he can accomplish that contentment according to verse 13 in God's strength where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this idea of the strengthening of God, the provision of God for our needs, is an important principle and concept to grasp in the life of the believer. While here it is applied specifically to achieving contentment in the strength of God, we understand that this promise of the strength of God permeates all aspects of our life, all, as all facets of our Christian living. And we can enjoy that as we trust Christ is to strengthen us in this broken and follow, fallen world, in, the, in a body which is broken and sinful. sinful. And so today we're going to settle in on this verse and see what else the Bible has to say about the strengthening power of God available in our lives. And the first thing we must note in this verse where he says, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, he doesn't say everything, does he? That's a kind of a qualification we must note. And we might be stating the obvious here, but Jesus does not strengthen us to live independent from him or strengthen us to rebel against him or to do my own thing. That's not what it's talking about. I can do everything I do. Obviously, there's a qualification, and that, qual and that qualification is the assumption that the child of God would do the will of God, would live in the word of God. And that promise of strength is available to those who would, who would walk in the will of God and be strengthened as we honor, glorify, and follow him. And Jesus himself left that example, didn't he? In John chapter 5, Verse 30, it says, Jesus said this, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus recognized his ability came from God, but he did so as he sought the will of the Father. And later he says in John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so the underlying teaching in this verse is the implication that the believer would, would do the will of God. That should be obvious. We want to do the will of our Heavenly Father, follow the wisdom of our Creator. And when we do that, God provides. In a basic un understanding, the strength to do that, the power to perform the will of God. And therefore, in order to enjoy this promise, we must first recognize that we need to be in the will of God, seeking the will of God, seeking to follow Him. Now, it's not talking about perfection, but a pursuit, isn't it? of the will of God in our lives. And we know God's will is, first of all, expressed in his word. Thus says the Lord. It's pretty clear when they're in the black and white of Scripture when God says, instructs us to do a certain thing. That's the will of God. It's, it's found in his eternal word. And the will of God is also enjoyed as we allow the Spirit of God to lead us in the word day by day, not only empowering us to live it, but also to lead, lead us to exercise it and to apply it, to be available for God's service, to be engaged in the Great Commission ministry and in lifting others up and pointing them to Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and so God has a will not only that we follow his word explicitly, but that we follow his leading each day. And the requirement, Jesus also mentioned in John 8, 29, later on, he says, I always do those things that please him. And that was the Son of God. God himself knew he had to pursue in everything God's will to please him. And that's sometimes where we get caught and stuck as believers because we don't always seek him in everything. Sometimes we serve God in our terms when it's convenient, when it works out okay. And sometimes we justify that by thinking that if I'm not doing anything bad, I must be okay with God. Or, or sometimes we think if, we're, if we pursue something that's biblically or morally right, we must be in God's will. 
However, that is not always the case. Good is not always good if we are disregarding God's will in another area of our life. I came across a good illustration of this in regards to, to the gospel. Because we understand that, that God offers salvation as a free gift through the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus paid it all. We understand the Bible teaches us that the problem between God and men is that men are lost to God because of their sin. And that sin must be taken care of. It must be dealt with. It needs to be forgiven. We need to be cleansed. And that only happens through the blood of Christ. We sang that. There's power in the blood. There's power to forgive sins because we've sinned against God as a people. There's power to be cleansed in the blood of the Lamb. And God offers that freely. Well, some people think that, well, you know, that's okay and that's nice, but I still think I have to be good to go to heaven. But in that case, good isn't always good. I'm going to read this quote here by uh, Charlie Bing, who came up with this illustration. He says, while pe people may do good things with seemingly good motives, this does not itself make them acceptable to God and therefore good. A person could do good things while rejecting Jesus Christ, which makes the good deed tainted by the more serious issue of unbelief and God's provision of salvation. For example, if a mother tells her daughter to turn off the lights and go to sleep, but instead she stays up and draws a pretty picture of her mom, that gift is tainted by the child's disobedience. It was a good thing done from an underlying attitude of disrespect. And that daughter remains in disobedience until she does what she is told to do. So God does not accept as good those who might do good deeds while they do not obey his command to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. I thought that was a very good illustration, isn't it? To help us to understand that just because we're doing good doesn't mean we're doing God's will. Because in this case of the gospel, God's provision for our salvation, the good news that Jesus died, buried, and rose again, God says in Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given amongst men, whereby we must be saved. Or the verse behind me on the wall. Jesus says, I am the way, and that's the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what God says. And yet some people think they can substitute for the death of Christ, or at least add to the death of Christ, their good works, which in essence makes them rebellious, in rebellion or disobedient to God's perfect will, and that God's perfect will is that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, the truth of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because Jesus paid it all. The only thing that can resolve the problem of sin between mankind and God was death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. The soul that sins, it shall die. And because God is a holy and just God, when man rebelled against him, sinned against him, God requires a penalty. We understand that. You know, we have a judicial system that understands that concept, that, that uh, offense requires a payment, a penalty of some of one way, shape, or form. But the good news is, is God provided the solution. Not only is he a just and holy God, but provided the solution through the cross, did he not? Well, in the life of the believer, it's similar for the child of God. Sometimes we think that we're doing a good thing, that we are good with God. And in some cases, good isn't always good because if, if, if that good is in the place of the will of God for me, then it's really an expression of rebellion. And, and we can't always tell. We don't, you know, it's not up to us to decide what that is for other people. Jonah, remember the story of Jonah when he disregarded the will of God, he still may have been a good person. And no one from the outside could tell that he was in rebellion against God, that he was sinning against God. But God wanted him to go somewhere, and he just, he just went the other direction. 
And so God made things right with the prophets. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's doing the will of God. Holy, acceptable to God. It's your reasonable service. It's reasonable not only because he's our creator. He created us. It's not only because he's our redeemer. He's purchased us in the blood of the Lamb. But it's reasonable because that's the way God designed us to live. That's where we find fulfillment and contentment. And he goes on to say, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the perfect will of God is to not only walk in his word, but be led by him day by day. So in order to enjoy this promise, first of all, I can do all things through Christ with strength in me. Let's make sure the all things is the will of God, isn't it? Because then we can do all things in his strength. As we examine the scripture in regards to the, the, the provision of grace that God, in, in which God provides strength for us, there's a prerequisite the Bible lays out before us in order to enjoy that, and that's acknowledging our need for help, isn't it? It's acknowledging our need that we have a need. And then we're recognizing that God in his grace to us, his goodness to us, provides for that need. And the Bible reminds us of that over and over because, uh, because of the effects of sin in our lives, that we need help. We're going to go to the book of Romans this morning. Let's start in chapter 3. We're going to spend a few minutes here in Romans chapter 3. And once again, we're going to keep this simple because it's a simple principle that we must not forget. And when it comes to the unsaved, what, what the unsaved need to see is that they're lost to God, that they are separated from God, and that they are heading for a Christless eternity apart from faith in Christ. Romans, in Romans chapter 3, it summarizes a discussion about mankind. And God divides mankind into three categories in these first three chapters. He talks about the immoral man in chapter 1, then he talks about the moral man, and then he talks about the religious man. And this is the conclusion he comes to in verse 9, where he says, What then are we, that is, we religious Jews, the category he was in, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles that they are all under sin, as it is written. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And then it goes on to describe some of the fruits of that lack of goodness. And God makes it perfectly clear that before him there's none good. Well, we might see people from time, from, as we observe them in our lives as having some good. Maybe there's some human good. God says that when it comes to becoming right with God, there's none good. There's none righteous. We're tainted by sin. Not one. There's, and the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, there's not a just man upon the earth that does good and sins not. Because so therefore, the problem with mankind is that he's lost to God, separated from God because of sin. Because in order to get to heaven, we have to be perfectly righteous. Otherwise, heaven wouldn't be so glorious if God allowed sin into heaven. And that's why the death of Christ is so important. In fact, down in verse 23, if you jump down to there in this chapter, he summarizes this concept in verse 23 with that simple verse that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But the good news starts in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, God recognized the need that we are lost because of sin, and he provided for that need through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
That redemption means Jesus purchased our salvation at the cross. He paid for our sins. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God met that need. But in order to get saved, in order for a person to come to, to, come to salvation in Christ, they must first understand that they're lost to God, lost in sin, heading for a crisis eternity. And these verses we read in verses 10 through 12 and on is like, that's me. I qualify. I was born into this life separated from God as a sinner. And that doesn't make me worse than anybody else. It just makes me the same as everybody else. We're all cut from that same mold. But God inter inter intervened when he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to purchase our salvation. Verse 25 goes on to explain what he says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation is just a big, big word for a satisfactory payment. It's a satisfactory payment. In other words, Jesus satisfied who? God. I'm not talking about satisfying us. He satisfied God's justice, God's wrath, God's holiness by paying that penalty in full so the debt was paid so that we could be forgiven. And that's why it goes on. Who God set forth as a propitiation, a satisfactory payment by his blood, the blood of the cross, through faith. That's how we get a hold of it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God is just and that he required a penalty for sin and that penalty was paid, but he's also a justifier. He himself took our sins on the cross that we might be declared right with God. That's how we attain righteousness. God declares us righteous in Christ. Because we're forgiven, cleansed, and clothed, you might say, if you want to put it that way. We're forgiven of our sins, we're cleansed in the blood of the Lamb, and we're clothed with his righteousness. We're declared righteous in Christ. So the prerequisite to enjoy the power of the blood, the saving power of the cross, was provided through Jesus Christ. And you and I must recognize that need, and that need was met through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Romans also addresses the life of the believer, if you jump over to chapter 7. Because one of the prerequisites to enjoying Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, is to recognize that we have a need, that we lack the strength, the capacity, the ability to live for God in our own. And maybe you've discovered that as a Christian. I hope you have. Because Paul did in his experience, and this is how he summarizes it in verse 18 of Romans 7, after he failed and failed and failed again, he says in verse 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, my body, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. I want to do what's right, but how to perform, the power to perform what is good, I do not find. And that's a discovery we must all make in our lives. That we have no strength in and of ourselves to do the will of God. And that's what Paul found out in Romans chapter 7 as you read through this context. He said, the harder I tried, the behinder I got. I couldn't find the strength to do it. It goes on to say in verse 19, For the good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil that I do not, I practice. He said, I'm doing just the opposite of what I want. Because at this time, Paul was trying to crank out the Christian life in his flesh. Verse 20, Now if I do what I will not do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And I find that he says a law. Paul said, I discovered a law, a fixed principle. That evil is present with me, even when I want to do good. And he discovered as a new Christian 
that even though he was saved by the blood of the Lamb, cleansed and forgiven and clothed in his righteousness, as long as he was in this flesh on this earth, his evil was still present, alive and well. We call it the sin nature. The Bible calls it the old man. He says, I found this, I, this principle that I still have that pet propensity to sin. For verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Sound familiar? It should. It's spiritual warfare. It's going on in all of our hearts. And like I've said in the past, it reminds me of when I was a little tyke and watched the cartoons, and I don't remember which one it was, but I sure remember the illustration of the devil sitting on one shoulder and the angel sitting on the other shoulder, whispering in their ear. And you know, they, I don't know if they knew it or not, but they were teaching Romans chapter 7 in that cartoon. Because that's the war that's going on in our members. And it brings us into captivity, doesn't it? We can't seem to escape. We can't find any way out. In fact, if you jump ahead to chapter 8, verse 3, beginning of verse 3 says, For what the law, that's the Ten Commandments, could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. And Paul says, I couldn't keep the Ten Commandments because there's no power in laws. The problem with the law is that it told me what I should do, but it didn't provide the power. Because I'm weak in the flesh. And so Paul comes to the conclusion that he's inherently sinful, have propensity to sin, and weak in the flesh. No strength in himself. And both are, uh, both are a necessary learning in the Christian walk. We need to realize and come to grips with the fact that that's just well, how I am. That's, that's the effect of the curse of sin in my life. Evil is present with me, and in the flesh I am weak and incapable of pleasing God. And that's why jump, if you're in Romans 8, Verse 7 says, for the carnal, because the carnal mind, that's the flesh, the fleshly nature, is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be, so that they who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Paul says it's impossible for our flesh to please God. We don't have it in us by nature. That's bad news. But it is a prerequisite to realizing the strength of God. You know, the Bible tells us that there's really three aspects to the provisions of strength to do the will of God in our lives, to be enabled. The three areas you could call liberty, capacity, and ability. And what do I mean by that? First of all, liberty. Freedom is what I mean. We find, we find in the scriptures that per the first thing Jesus accomplished for us as Christians, as children of God, is freedom from the chains of sin. Notice back in chapter 7, verse 24, where we left off, says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Where am I going to find help and hope and healing and strength? Verse 25 gives the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we find it. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why in Romans 8, 3, where we read already the first part of the verse, what the law could not do and as weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Condemned sin in the flesh means he broke its power. He had victory over it. And he did so by keeping the law perfectly and then paying for our sins as our substitute. If you go back to Romans chapter 6, we find that discussion 
here in quite extensive detail in Romans chapter 6. But I want to just look, first of all, at verse 6, where it says, knowing this, that our old man, the old flesh, that nature of sin, that evil that's present with me, was crucified with him. That that body of sin, that old man, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. It doesn't mean it's eradicated. It means that we can have victory. Romans 6 here says, declares that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he broke the power of sin over us. We no longer have to serve sin. And I mentioned this many times, that Romans 6 is the Emancipation Proclamation of the believer. Just like the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves legally, they still had to go out and claim it and realize it and enjoy it, did they not? Well, that's what Romans 6 says. It declares us free. We don't have to. Jesus broke that power. If you're a child of God, if you've come to him through faith in Christ, Jesus broke the, broke the power. He, he severed the chains. He freed us. In fact, if you jump down to verse 17, here in Romans 6, it says, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin. When was that? Well, were is past tense. That means before you knew Christ, you were slaves of sin. There was no escape. There was no hope. There was no strength. There was no ability. Yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which, was which you were delivered. What form of teaching is that? What form of doctrine teaching is that? The gospel. You obeyed the gospel. You came to trust Christ as your Savior. You put your faith in him. That... Verse 18, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In Christ, we're, we're able to serve righteousness. We've been set free. So first thing Christ provided for, for us to enjoy the strengthening power over the enslaving power of sin is he set us free, liberty. The second thing he's given us, provided through the Lord Jesus Christ as the answer for that problem, is we have a new capacity. Because before we knew Christ as Savior, all we knew was the old man, the old flesh, the old way of living. But in Christ, we find new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Puts it this way, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the next verse goes on to say, all those new things are of God. You see, when we trust Christ as a Savior, we have new life within. Turn with me, if you will, over to Colossians chapter 3, which it maybe explains this a little bit. Colossians chapter 3. You might remember the story of Nicodemus when he asked Jesus about entering the kingdom of God. Jesus said, you must be born again. And he wasn't talking about some mystical, supernatural experience where you saw visions of dancing in his head. He simply told this religious guy, you need new life. You need to be born again. He was born once. He was born physically. He has physical life, but he was void of spiritual life. You need new life. You need to be born of the Spirit, as he goes on to say in that page. And when we're born of the Spirit, we receive a new life, a new man. Here in Colossians 3, it's characterized by Christ living within Verse 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ, who is our life, appears. So it's described as a Christ-like. And we know that the Bible tells us that when we trust Christ as Savior, Jesus comes to live within. And that new life is a new capacity. You see, the old life did not have the capacity to please God. That's what Paul came to that conclusion. But in Christ, we have a new capacity. We have new life. We have a, we have a new Savior living within and if you jump down to verse 8 here, it says, but 
Now you yourselves are to put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Why is that? Because those are characteristics of the old man. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And so the expectation is the Christian does not live in the old self, but instead, verse 10, you put on the new man. You live in the new self, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So we have a new man, a new capacity, new life in Christ. Christ lives within, the Holy Spirit indwells us. That's called that, that new man. Peter calls it the new divine nature. But it's created in his image. This new life is a reflection of him. That should remind you of something. Back in the garden, God created man in his image and in his likeness. But that image and likeness was tainted because of sin, wasn't it? Sin spoiled that image, caused man to be self-seeking rather than God-glorifying. That was the effect of sin. But the answer God brings us through the cross is now that we have a new life, a new capacity, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Once again, we have the capacity to reflect his image in our lives. That's been restored. We have a new capacity in Christ. The third thing God has provided for us in order to be strengthened to do his will in our lives and enjoy the power of God is ability. We have liberty. We've been free. We have capacity. We have new life in Christ. And we have ability. Acts chapter 1, remember that promise God gave his Jesus gave his disciples when he left the earth. He said, you're going to receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, God has given us his spirit. And back in Romans chapter 8, remember, I'll read this verse again, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he became a man. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, he won the victory. That, there's a purpose to this, that the righteous requirement of the law keeping God's righteousness, might be fulfilled in us. Might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's fulfilled in us. Well, that's a key word. There are little words that are important in the Bible. Jesus confirmed that in his ministry, that uh, not, no jot or tittle will ever be removed from the law, the smallest elements of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet at the time. And he tells us here that the righteousness of God is fulfilled in us. How? Not to those who walk according to the flesh. You don't find the strength there, but those who walk according to the Spirit. See, God has given us his Spirit. And the Bible tells us if a man does not have the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And life is to be lived in dependence upon that Spirit. You know, the whole passage in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit is just that. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit that we're supposed to emulate, copy in our, in our own strength. It's a fruit that God produces as we submit to him, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, and so on. But that verse is concluded in verse 16 by saying, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it goes on to tell us in verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's a warfare in us. But victory is had, ability is had, power is had when we walk in the spirit. And that's what's told throughout scripture. To be filled with the spirit. To be led of the spirit. And that's where power comes from. We have liberty in Christ. We have capacity and a new, new life is provided. And we find the ability and the power of the Spirit which, is, which dwells within us, which Jesus has sent to us. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ. It's through Him. First in salvation, 
He provides cleansing. And then in sanctification, in Christian living, we have freedom, we have liberty, we have capacity, we have ability. But another key word in Philippians 4.13 is I can do. I can do. Kind of obvious, isn't it, that I don't always do. I don't always do. That, that makes it volitional, doesn't it? Willful. I have a choice how I live my days. In salvation, a person might see their need, might come to understand that God in his grace provided for that need through the Lord Jesus Christ's work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, but may not choose to trust for that provision. And it's the choice we must have. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and his team, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John 5.24 says this, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. So in order for a person to come to salvation and escape eternal judgment, to enjoy new life in Christ, to have his sins forgiven, and to, and to come to know a God who can then heal him and, and, and equip him and prepare him for life, he must first hear and then believe. And believe in. Not just believe about, but to believe in. Believe in the one who died for me. That God himself came in the flesh to be my Savior. He took my sins on the cross. John 3.36 says this, He who believes the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so salvation is a choice. We see our need. God provides a need. Will you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin? Well, for the Christian, strengthening power of God in life is the same. We must choose to trust him. I can do all things through Christ. It's all the, uh, the provision is there. And we choose, as we believe his word to be our guide in life, we choose to follow him as the Spirit of God leads us day by day in how, we, how he wants us to live and what he wants us to do and how we can serve him, how we can be used of him, and so on in our lives. It's his will. And sometimes we like, as I said, we like to substitute good things for the perfect will of God. But when we trust him, we choose to put him first, to seek him first, God strengthens us. And that's why 2 Corinthians 3, 5 says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves or think anything is of ourselves, our sufficiency is of God. That's a choice we make. That Paul was talking about his ministry, but leaving us an example that we're not sufficient in ourselves. We think anything is of ourselves, our sufficiency is of him, and it's a choice we make. That's why we're told to grieve not the spirit, to quench not the spirit, to walk in the spirit, to be filled with the spirit. Those are all decisions we make in our lives as we respond to his teaching and his leading in our lives. that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and you might want to turn there if you don't, where Paul had an issue in his life, an affliction in his life. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12 says, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelation, a thorn of the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. So Paul came to understand why God allowed this in his life. In Paul's case, it's not always in all of our cases, but in Paul's case, God was keeping him humble. Whatever that was, I'm not going to debate what that thorn in the flesh was, but it was sent, it was a, a buff, 
comforted him. It was miserable. That's what it means. It was an unwelcome circumstance in his life. So concerning this thing, he says in verse 8, I pleaded with the Lord three times. He brought it to him three times. I don't know what, why three, but that's, that's, that's what happened. He said that it might depart from me. Like he falls like the rest of us. Lord, I want out of this situation. I want to be delivered. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Is that what God's asking? God says, you know what? In this case, I'm not going to deliver you, but I am going to sustain you. That was his promise. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strengthen you to get through it. I'm going to hold you in it. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And see, once again, you see that prerequisite. Paul recognizing a weakness. In this trial in his life, and God says, my grace is going to be sufficient. He says, I can take care of you. I can sustain you. I can uphold you. It's sufficient. And God promises that. So on one hand, some people might say, well, you know, God, why didn't you just, why didn't you just heal him, whatever the case was? Well, obviously it wasn't the will of God. And God might have said to him, as he says in other places in Scripture, that day will come when, when we're with him. Some people like to blame God for all the afflictions in their life. Somebody just mentioned to me lately that in their community they've heard a lot of people talking about hating God for what he's doing to them. And what they fail to recognize is, according to the Bible, Romans 5.12 says it's by one man sin entered the world. And death, which is the worst, by the way, of buffeting, and death by sin. And that death passed upon all men because we've all sinned. You see, mankind brought this sin and suffering into the world. It's not God's fault. God's in the business of, of rescuing us, restoring us, repairing us, helping us, delivering us, strengthening us. And he, and he chooses to do it on his timetable. The first step in that was salvation. I mean, what a tremendous demonstration of God's effort to, to rescue us. He sent his only son and then laid on him, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. To rescue us from eternal damnation. That's, that's a pretty good start. He goes on in life to rescue us from this present evil world through teaching us the word of God and giving us of his spirit and so on. And someday we'll get deliverance from all these afflictions when we're with him in glory. In the meantime, God simply helps us navigate life because that's the world we live in. We have a body which, is, which is, has a propensity to sin. We live, in a, around, and we live in amidst sinners who are inherently selfish which which is really the source of conflict, and we live in a world that's cursed by sin. We're going to have problems. That's just the way it is. In the meantime, God wants to use us to be a light for him, to show others the grace that God has provided to rescue us. And so in the meantime, God says, okay, Paul, that'll come someday. Now, it's not here, but I'm comparing Scripture with Scripture. God says, someday, you'll have that rest, but for now, my grace is going to be sufficient for you. What was Paul's conclusion then going on? Therefore, I got my answer. He says, most gladly, I'm going to do this. I'm going to boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul said, if that's the case, then I'm going to keep, I'm going to boast and keep in mind and remember my weaknesses, my infirmities, my afflictions, that I might enjoy the power of Christ to, to navigate and survive this life. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities and reproaches and these things. You might think, Paul, you're weird, actually. 
I take pleasures and infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I, then I am strong. And what Paul discovered through this process of this buffeting of that, that came upon him, this unwelcome circumstance, this affliction, was that the deeper awareness of the power of God, the grace of God, the provision of God. He said, I'm not sitting here for anything. Because in it, I saw the grace of God to deliver. Strength is available. But this was a choice. If it was me, I would have said, God, I don't like that answer. That's not the answer I'm looking for, God. This is not what I want. And I would have lost out on the opportunity to see the riches of the personal care of God and provision of grace and strength to provide. So Paul leaves us that example. And it was a will. He willfully decided to say, okay, Lord, we're going to do it your way. I'm going to enjoy your grace. And God, and Paul experienced the depth of God's love for him in that provision. And so in the scriptures, we sometimes when you talk about the power of God, the provision of strength, it is inexhaustible, isn't it? Because we need strength in all areas of life. We need strength to live every day, to live holy, godly lives. Maybe that's where our verse today applies. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need help to, to live right. I need strength and power to resist temptation. Galatians 5.16 says we find that in the spirit. Walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I need strength to stand up for the truths and holiness of God in my, in my life, among my peers and in my community, and sometimes in my place of work. God says in Ephesians 6.10, in the area of spiritual warfare, he says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. God provides for all aspects of our life, doesn't he? But I also wanted to mention this morning that that, that also not only includes this type of what we've been talking about, this spiritual and mental resolve and fortitude that God wants to strengthen us with, but it does involve physical strength as well, doesn't it? They go together in reality because often our spiritual battles wear on us physically, do we not? And that's what our scripture readings address today. Even when we fail and fall, even the youth are going to stumble and fall and, not, and run out of strength. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. You see, God provides for our physical needs as well. The strength to survive the day, to get through the day. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So not only do we need spiritual and mental fortitude that we've been talking about today, but we also need the, the physical strength and endurance to get through the day. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul, in a prayer for the Ephesian saints, said that, prayed this, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that inner strength that we've been talking about. Be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he addresses the physical. In verse 8, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we are burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, the answer was we had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who, by the way, raises the dead, and he delivered us from so great a death and does continue to deliver us, in whom we trust that he should still deliver us. Physical, physical deliverance and strength, God provides for that as well. Now, it may not be like Superman, so that when you're buffeted like Paul, that you're going to pop out of your phone booth you know, you know, glowing with energy. Often it's just a sufficient grace for the day. 
It might feel, not feel like some, but remember, God will sustain you. He'll give you just enough. His grace will be sufficient for the need of the hour. And so they go hand in hand, don't they? The spiritual, mental toughness that God provides, the strength he gives, along with the physical endurance to live his will, whatever he calls us to do in life. I've often mentioned that one of the most frequent promises in scriptures is, I will be with you. But that promise is often coupled with one of the most frequent provisions mentioned in Scripture. I will strengthen you. It's mentioned over and over and over again because God knows our need. And I could have, I had a list of verses and I had to cut them down, but just a few. Psalm 18.32, it is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. Psalm 17.5, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps might not slip. And one of my favorites, Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Familiar verses, Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting. Well, on and on we could go. You know, to people that were hurting and struggling, God says this in Hebrews, therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that which is lean may not be dislocated, but rather that it be healed. So God takes those that are broken and lifts them up. But have to let, we have to let him do that. To the struggling church in Sardis, Jesus said to them, this, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. He says, you're a dead church. Be watchful, he says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. And so even at our lowest point, the strength of God is available, and he will lift us up. The question before us then is, why do we face life on our own? have the power of the almighty God who has the power to raise the dead available to us. That question was obviously laid before the lost. Why do they not trust in God's provision of salvation to restore them to a right relationship and for you and I? It's a tremendous principle to get a hold of Philippians 4.13. I can do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can rely upon the power of God in every area of our lives to strengthen us spiritually, to strengthen us mentally, to increase our fortitude, and to uphold us through the night. It's a wonderful provision that you and I are given to enjoy in his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for uh, this so common promise in the scriptures that you, we, can, we can live in the strength of Christ. Father, for you and your grace have provided for our needs in all aspects of life, and you promise to uphold us and strengthen us and direct us. Father, how foolish we are when we walk independent and we fail to walk in f by faith and trusting you each day and so father uh, draw us to your side give us that desire to seek your will and depend upon your power that we may be all you have us to be so make these things understandable to us helpful to us and apply them to our life we 